welcome to the ITSE podcast. We are ITSE, the Independent Press Standards Organisation. We're the independent regulator of the majority of the UK's newspaper and magazine industry. Uh, these podcasts are for anyone who's interested in newspapers, journalism, the media, how it's regulated, and of course, our work. I'm Vicky, and I'm your host today, and I'm joined by Charlotte Irwin, who is our Head of Standards. Hi, Charlotte. Hello. Uh, today, we're talking about something really important and that is the reporting of sexual offences. We've recently published some new guidance for editors and journalists on this topic and also some new information for the public on it as well. Before we start, kind of kick off our discussions, I just want to say something really quickly about language and terminology because I know that lots of people have really strong opinions on this. Many people who experience um, sexual offences prefer to be known as survivors rather than victims, say in this podcast, we're going to try to use that term wherever possible. However, the Editor's Code of Practice, which is the set of rules that we regulate, does echo the law in some respects, and so it does use this terminology. So if we're talking about the code or the guidance for journalists, it may well be that we use that term, and I hope that's okay with everyone. So let's kick off, Charlotte, by talking about why newspapers report on sexual offences in the first place. Yeah, yeah, so I think there are a couple of reasons why newspapers do that. The first is quite often it might be because a journalist is reporting on um, uh, court proceedings. They're reporting on ongoing court proceedings, which might be about alleged sexual offences and the journalist writing on that because it's a really important principle of open justice that what goes on in court is that happens in an open and transparent way. You know, as citizens, we don't have time to go and sit in court every day, but that's why journalists will be there reporting on interesting court cases so that justice is seen to be done, as I say, in this open and transparent way. But it's not just about kind of reporting on, on the offences themselves. You know, you pick up a newspaper or a magazine, it might well have an article which is more generally talking about the societal issues that sexual offences raise. You know, we've seen this very topically in the last year or so with campaigns like the Me Too campaign, which are really aimed at both raising awareness and, and challenging a culture which allows these sorts of things to happen. So newspapers or magazines might write campaigning pieces like that. They might also campaign on, on sort of specific issues such as female genital mutilation or indeed um, issues like human trafficking and modern slavery, which often have um, sexual elements to them as well. Mm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that, Charlotte, because it's actually, um, I think it's really important to say in this podcast that um, in law, a large number of offences are considered sexual offences in law. So that would include the offences that you might expect, like rape and sexual assault, but also um, things like FGM, like human traffic and modern slavery. So when we're talking about reporting on sexual offences, we're talking about the whole spectrum of things here, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think it goes without saying, really, that these are, are really, really sensitive issues. It's really important that they are reported on um, in an appropriate and sensitive way. Um, and there are lots of rules already on how they should be reported. Uh, we don't normally actually get to talk about the law very much because we're a regulator, we regulate the code, we're not a legal body. But in this case, it's actually really relevant, isn't it? Yeah, so I think, I think it's a really good point to start from is what is the legal framework that journalists and others are working within when they're reporting on these sorts of issues. And there's a very clear point on this, which is that the law says that from the moment an offence is reported, and that could be by the victim or by a representative of the victim, friend, family member, for example, the victim has anonymity in, for, essentially for their lifetime. 
Um, and that remains in case um, even when perhaps the allegation of a sexual offence is withdrawn or if the police decide to take no action or indeed if, if the accused is acquitted. Uh, there are a couple of exceptions to this, um, which I'll talk about in a minute, but this is, you know, this is a very clear starting point, I think. But I think a few things to mention as well when we're talking about the law, you know, that anonymity only relates to the relevant proceedings. So it might be relevant to identify a victim in the context of unrelated proceedings. And in some circumstances, magistrates or a trial judge can actually lift the automatic rule of anonymity, but that's in sort of very limited circumstances. Um, the other thing is the law actually makes clear that although victims have, have this anonymity, victims themselves can choose to waive their right to anonymity if they want to without the consent of, of the court. They don't need consent from the court, but they must be over 16 and if they want to waive the right to anonymity, that consent must be done in writing. Um, you know, and, and therefore, of course, if, you, if you're under the age of 16, you can't waive your right to anonymity. And also, a quick note for any Scottish listeners out there, um, the law obviously is slightly different in Scotland, but the practice of respecting anonymity is the same. Mm-hmm. So obviously we have the law and journalists are working within this framework, but we also have the Editor's Code, which is the set of rules that Ipse regulates, and it puts even more restrictions on the reporting of sexual offences, primarily to protect the identity of victims. So um, what clauses are relevant here? I think I think we can start from the fact that the vast majority of clauses within the code are relevant to the reporting of sexual offences more generally. I'm thinking about clauses around accuracy and harassment, but there are two specific clauses that I particularly want to touch on today. I'm going to do them in reverse numerical order. Apologies to those who like things in an ordered way, but it makes sense to start from the point of view of clause 11 because this clause um, sort of maps to the legal points that I was talking about earlier with a slight extension. So clause 11 of the code says that Journalists must not publish material that is likely to identify a victim of sexual assault unless there is adequate justification and the journalist is legally free to do so. So there's a kind of, you know, it makes very clear that unless the journalist has both adequate justification for publishing it and the journalist is legally free to do so, so it's an and, not an or, journalists can't publish information, can't publish material that is likely to identify a victim of sexual assault. Moving on from that then, there's also a specific clause of the code which talks about children, which is clause 7, children in relation to sexual offences. So those of you who who are familiar with our podcast, familiar with the code, will know that the code already has quite a lot of protections written into it specifically for children. Clause 7 is one of those clauses. And clause 7 states that journalists must not, even if legally free to do so, identify children who are under 16 if they are victims or witnesses in cases involving sex offences. Also, it makes clear that journalists must not publish anything which implies the relationship between the accused and the victim. That could include words like incest, for example. Now, I think it's important to say that there's no public interest exemption for Clause 11, but there is for Clause 7. But, as I say, the Code has extensive, you know... extensive protections in place for children and you know if a publisher was thinking about is there a public interest in exploring something they would have to demonstrate what the code calls an exceptional public interest to override the normally paramount interests of um, a child in this case and I'd I'd say that you know I'm not aware of certainly Ipso hasn't had any cases in relation to this point of in relation to the application of the public interest exception to clause seven and I'd say to any editors or journalists who are thinking about publishing this sort of material and thinking about whether the public interest applies please do get in touch with us 
um, to get some pre-publication advice before publishing it. As I, I hope that a lot of journalists and editors uh, will know, we do offer 24-hour pre-publication advice and you can find details about that on our website. Um, so obviously we mentioned that we have produced this new guidance for editors and journalists. Um, neither of us are journalists and actually I would say that one of the things that I found really interesting about it is kind of thinking about the processes that journalists have to kind of go through when they're reporting on this because uh, we can see from what we've just discussed it is actually really complicated isn't it? Yeah absolutely so when I've spoken to sort of journalists and editors and I've talked to our journalist advisory panel about this as well and they all said that they had a pretty good understanding of which I'd hope you know of, of the law and the code but really it was about how those two things applied to the content that they were producing that they wanted some guidance on um, and I think that's that's the difficult area. It's thinking about, you know, as a journalist, I think your natural inclination is to, you, you want to write exciting, engaging copy which has interesting details in it that the, will grab the reader, will help the reader to identify with, with the person who's, whose experience is being written about. So you want to put in personal details, that's, that's kind of your natural inclination. But in relation to the reporting of sex offences, actually, there's very clear framework within the law and within the code that we've already talked about, which is actually about limiting the sorts of information that you put into the public domain. So, uh, you know, so there's kind of a, a sort of a, a thing, a, an issue there for journalists, I think, to negotiate. So when we were thinking about the guidance, I really wanted it to be as, as practical as possible. So what we've done is we sort of identified essentially a three-step process that journalists can follow if they're thinking about writing a story on this topic. The first is, you know, when, when the piece is finished, is to go through it, I think, and think about what is the potentially identifying information within the article which needs to be brought about against the code. And that could be, you know, things, information about the victim, it could be information about the defendant, it could be details of the offence, um, you know, think those sorts of things. And then having sort of looked at all of that and, and thought about all of that, the next step really is to then say, okay, with this information, could this information you know, might it identify the victim or is it likely to lead to the identification of the victim? And sometimes that's going to be really obvious. You know, you, uh, details such as, for example, a partial address of where the victim lived, for example, or something about a specific relationship between the, the victim and the accused, obviously very likely to lead to the identification of a victim. But there are going to be other pieces of information which I think at first glance might not be as clear. I'm thinking, for example, you know, um, information which might seem insignificant, but where people who already know the parties involved, um, perhaps through, you know, through fr friendships and things like that, or within the local community, something like that, um, you know, it might be even that insignificant information could lead to the victim being identified or might be likely to lead to them being identified. That could be um, incidental information such as the precise dates on which the offences were alleged to take place or how the accused, you know, if the accused was known to have contact with the victim on those dates. So there's kind of the individual pieces of information to think about. But then I think also, it's also about thinking about all the information holistically and saying, okay, is there a com could a combination of information within this article lead to the victim being identified or is it likely to lead to them being identified? So by piecing together those different pieces of information, uh, you know, as an example, again, a combination of details such as perhaps the age of the victim, specific location in which the offences took place, um, and information on how the defendant met the victim might well, in combination, be likely to lead to the victim being identified. 
Then there's a final sort of extra layer of, uh, uh, to think about, which is really about jigsaw identification, i.e. the piecing together of different pieces of information across different publications. And this is, this is challenging, I think, I think for journalists. Um, because it is through that combination of information in different publications that readers might be able to, to work out who the victim is. So to sort of prevent this from happening, there are a couple of things to think about. First of all, I've touched on this a little bit already, but clause seven of the code specifically when reporting on children is very clear in terms of the framework that should be adopted by publications when they're reporting on sexual offences involving children. As I said earlier, for example, don't use the word incest, you can name the defendant but not the child, you know, those sorts of things. But I think journalists should also be thinking about, okay, if, 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 this, story, if this court case, for example, has been reported on before, what other information by other, uh, you know, have I as a journalist or, or indeed my colleagues in the newsroom already put out about this case? What other information is already out there from other media outlets? And just thinking about that. And, and if the journalist wants to put new personal information into the public domain or information about the court case, thinking very carefully about why it is necessary to report on that, making sure that you might not, that you can prevent um, an accidental identification. And then I suppose there's also the challenge of kind of um, the way things are published now, often um, online, I'm thinking of kind of online mm -hmm. and social, social media more, um, you know, especially when you have reader comments and things underneath, it kind of creates a space where kind of the case is being discussed and the, the likelihood of identification kind of increases there, I would guess. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is, this is, a, this is something that, you know, we are very much a part of now thanks to changes in how individuals are reading and engaging with news and, and um, media content more generally. I think it's fair to say that most members of the public are probably not aware that they must not identify victims of sexual offences, or indeed some of them may, may regard that legal requirement as unfair or trivial. Um, you know, there have been cases involving um, famous individuals and celebrities where there was a lot of discussion on social media as to who the victims of those, uh, the alleged victims of those celebrities might be. Um, and yes, if you put stuff online in particular, whether it's published on social media um, platforms or indeed on a site that the newspaper or magazine control, you are creating that space. So I would say, you know, I want to be clear, you know, editors and are not responsible for kind of, they can't prevent really circulation of links to stories and commentary on the, on those stories when it's hosted on third party websites. But the code makes clear that editors are responsible for material published on websites under their control. And so editors should be thinking carefully before publishing these sorts of stories on social media sites or with reader comments enabled. And I would, I would strongly encourage editors to think about whether with these sorts of stories, it's actually better perhaps to post, if you're going to post them online, post them without reader comments being open or if you are going to have it with reader comments, thinking very carefully about how you will actively moderate those comments so that you prevent that sort of creation of a space in which victims can be identified. I think the other thing to think about when publishing online in particular is it's not just thinking about the text of the piece. I think that's often where people, journalists might look to say, okay, am I complying with the code in what I've written? It's actually thinking about all the other bits that you might be publishing, all the other parts of the piece that you're pulling together. So it could be, text messages or video or photos, just making sure that there's nothing in any of those things which could identify the victim or might be likely to lead to their identification. Mm, so kind of lots of complexities to think about there. And 
I mean, obviously, as a kind of non-journalist, I think it's really useful to hear the kind of framework that people are producing these articles in. Um, but I also want to talk about survivors because, um, as we said, we've also produced information for them. And it's kind of designed to, to kind of, as we've just been discussing, help them understand the rules which newspapers and magazines should be following, but also to kind of inform and empower them about what to expect from journalists, um, empowering them to speak to the media if they want to, but also about kind of knowing where to go for help if they don't. Absolutely, and I think a really key part of, of, of the work that we've been doing in this area was that we were able to meet with some survivors um, and also some organisations that represented survivors. Um, I'd just like to say sincere thanks to all of those that we met and spoke to as we were doing this project uh, and this, this piece of work and I'm really grateful for all their comments and insight which have been extremely valuable. Um, one thing that came through very strongly from, from those meetings was that a lot of the survivors that I spoke to talked about how sensitive media reporting of other people's experience of sexual offences actually helped those survivors themselves to, to seek help to, to go to the police, to tell friends and family about what had happened to them, in some cases themselves, to actually become vocal campaigners about their own experience. And, and I really wanted to, we really wanted here at Ipso to kind of, to recognise that and to say that there is a real value in survivors talking about their experiences if they want to. And, and, and that's a really, really important message. We're not saying in any way that every survivor will want to speak to the media, but I know that some do. And I know that other survivors find that, it, you know, seeing it in newspapers and magazines, seeing other people's stories, hearing about other people's experiences, incredibly valuable. So we've produced um, the leaflet, which, as you say, Vicky, kind of talks through the sorts of situations in which a, a survivor might encounter a journalist and the things that they might uh, want to do, whether or not they wish to speak to the media. So if we could sort of start with kind of where is it most likely that a survivor will come into contact with a journalist, chances are it's probably going to be um, if, a if the journalist is there reporting on a court case in um, about offences that, that affected the survivor. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say that, that quite a lot of people don't know that, you know, more generally that journalists actually do go and report on court cases and journalists can be in court taking notes of, of what's said um, and will publish articles based on that. Um, you know, and journalists don't know, um, survivors, sorry, don't know that journalists might attend one or more days of a trial, that, um, you know, that, that, that the story that a journalist, the piece that a journalist might write, especially if they're there for, on behalf of an agency, um, might appear in, in lots of other uh, publications as well. Um, and that also that within the court space, obviously the journalists will themselves have access to lots more information, including the identity of, of the victims in, in that court case. Um, and that the journalists may well go and approach the victims to say, would you like to give a comment about your experiences and, and kind of all of that. Mm, that's really interesting, Charlotte, actually, because, I mean, I think for a lot of people, probably if you're going into a situation like that, that might be quite unexpected. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, perhaps it's important to say that the, one of the reasons why that might happen is because journalists have to report on things accurately, and that's why they're approaching people. And it's obviously up to you or not whether you talk to that journalist but I guess it could be quite surprising yeah I think and I think it's it's also about giving 
giving the survivor the opportunity to say, this is what happened to me, this is the impact of what happened to me on myself or my friends or my family or, or whatever it is, and giving them the opportunity to speak out and have a voice it, during the court experience as well, which I think, it, I think is really important. Um, you know, I think, I think that it's just important just to stress that generally, as we've talked about, there is a principle of, of um, open justice that journalists can report what is said in court. Obviously, as we've touched on already in relation to sexual offences, um, journalists could not publish anything which might lead to the identification of um, a victim of sexual offences. So it's possible that there might well be details given in court, for example, which wouldn't end up in, a co in copy that appears in a newspaper or magazine for that reason. It's also important, I think, to reflect on the fact that when you're talking about sexual offences, you might well be talking about very, very sensitive and mm, intimate things, um, things that people might find quite shocking. Those sorts of details might end up in a newspaper because it's part of showing the picture of what happened to, the, to this individual um, and uh, making sure that the, the information is reported accurately. Mm. Something else that you said that I thought was really interesting and I think is worth kind of going back and talking about is that thing about um, the article appearing in more than one publication. Um, because, I mean, say for example, you decide to talk to a journalist from your local newspaper, you're not necessarily expecting to perhaps see that story in a big national newspaper. Yeah, I think so. And I think it's just something to be aware of. It doesn't, you know, do and we're not saying it will happen every time, um, but quite often, journalists in court might be working for a news agency or it might be that um, a local news report is picked up by national newspapers or, or other local newspapers because they those newspapers are, think it would be of interest to their particular readers. Mm. So um, what sort of things could you expect to see kind of relating to the reporting of a case? So I would expect, it depends really on how long uh, the case is going on. I think it might well be that a journalist might, if, if the case is running over more than one day, for example, you might have an article one day which is about the prosecution's argument and an article the other day about, about the defence's argument. Um, you might well see, for example, details such as the name, age and address of the defendant. Um, you might see similar details of witnesses, so long as obviously it wasn't identifying um, the, the victim in that case. You might see um, there might be photos um, of the defendant coming into court potentially, um, or potentially photos taken from social media um, as well, If you know, so long as those photos don't show anything private or anything like that. And they're obviously not on a private profile, because yeah. for those of you that haven't listened to our social media podcast um, and you're interested in that, is that it's quite interesting to learn more about kind of the rules around using social media. Um, so if a survivor wanted to talk about their experiences, and obviously, as we've said, not everybody does, um, what sort of things should they be thinking about? I think it's really important to think about this in terms of how can the survivor, how, if you're a survivor, how do you retain as much control as you can over the experience of talking to a journalist? Recognising that there will be many things about that experience that are beyond your control, and we'll talk about those in a minute. But I think the most important thing for me is that if you're a survivor and you wish to speak to the media about your experiences, you do so at a time that suits you, that is right for you. And I think it's also important to stress that you do not need to waive your right to anonymity to speak to the media. You know, I'm sure we've all read... Um, 
articles um, in which uh, survivors are anonymous and the journalist may, will say, you know, names and address withheld or something like that. There'll be some very clear information to say that, you know, that this is an anonymous piece. Other survivors may wish to, to speak openly and to identify themselves and, and to waive their right to anonymity, but you don't have to do that to speak to the media. I think for me, the key things are really, there are some practical things that survivors can think about. You know, if you're going to be interviewed, choose a space in which to be interviewed that you feel comfortable in. If you want to bring somebody with you to give you support, absolutely feel free to do that. If you want to contact an organisation that gives support to survivors after the experience or indeed before the experience, I'd very much encourage you to do so there. That, those are, that is what those organisations are there for, is to, just to give that support. And there is a sort of other practical tips such as, you know, if you want to, if you're a survivor and you want to record your interview, I'd encourage you to do so. If you're going to be anonymous, it might be helpful to agree with the journalist beforehand what sorts of personal details, um, obviously not your name, but kind of there might be other details within the article that you are happy having published, what you might not want published, all of those sorts of things. And the other thing is, if you want to have if you want to have sort of oversight over how your if you've got any quotes how those will be presented again it would be good to agree that with the journalist before the interview a few other things to say you know if an art journalist may not be able to tell you if and when an article is published um, and also there will be a stage at which kind of the article goes through um, the copy editing process and then a headline is added to it and you may be able to ask for copy approval journalists don't have to provide that it's unlikely that survivors would be able to to sort of see what a headline might look like before an article is published the headline might well be written by somebody who isn't linked to the story directly as well oh, that's really interesting charlotte um i mean i guess what i would just say for kind of any survivors or in fact organizations as well that are listening is that if anybody has any concerns about any of this then we do have obviously our 24-hour helpline um charlotte is obviously here all of our contact details are on the website so uh, we're really happy to kind of talk about this further um we'd really welcome hearing from you um as we said we have all of these um these leaflets for survivors and also the guidance for editors and journalists if you're an organization and you want these please do get in touch with us at inquiries at ipso.co.uk and we would be delighted to send them out for you i think i've touched on the fact that i'd encourage survivors to to seek support from organizations that are that are there to do that but i think I think it's also worth just taking a moment to think about the impact that writing stories about um, pe writing pieces about sexual offences could have on the journalists themselves. And I think it's something perhaps that we don't talk about so often. But actually, in terms of thinking about as a journalist, kind of making sure that you are doing um, that you're you're doing your job efficiently and effectively, and all of that, I, I certainly encourage any journalist who's writing um, on these sorts of topics and and has been you know is affected by what they're writing about also to say go out and get some help or get some support and speak to somebody about the impact of writing these stories on them as well so that they can then give as good a support as possible to the survivors that they are engaging with too. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much, Charlotte, for joining us today. Um, as we've said, the website, ipso.co.uk, all of that information is available there. Um, and let us know what you think. We are at Ipso News on Twitter and Facebook and we will be putting out another podcast soon.